Join me every month for the inspiration to find your finish line. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a great day. Welcome to Find Your Finish Line, presented by Activice, the official topical pain relief partner of Ironman. I'm Mike Riley, and over the past few weeks, you've been listening to this podcast, and I hope you've been enjoying it and enjoying the messages from our guests who give you messages about what they've been going through, the ups and downs, and how they get to the other side. And hopefully, it's giving you examples and ways to keep moving forward with your life. And I've got that type of guest with me today, that his story is one of the most incredible stories I've ever been involved with uh, and known about. Mr. Mike Ergo, how you doing, Mike? Hey, thanks, Mike. I'm doing great today. Yeah, I'm sitting here. Uh Alive, well, caffeinated, got a little dog in my lap, so life is good. <laughs> well, Mike, you have a unique and not so unique story. You know, we've all heard and we know and are aware of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and but, but a lot of us really don't know the depths of it and what it means to the people that are afflicted with it. Uh, and and you're an Ironman athlete. You're a husband. You're a father of two beautiful children, and uh, you're an avid fisherman, which we'll we'll talk about because because of what happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll talk we'll talk about that. But uh, first of all, I just want to jump into. So, what have you and the family through the pandemic, the last obviously fourteen months or so? How'd you how'd how'd you guys work through it? You know, the, I think the one of the best things we did is get a jump house for the kids, you know, cause with all this energy that's pent up and, and, you know, kids take on that, that worry that they can see around them. They've been able to run around in our backyard, really fortunate to have a yard and they can plan a jump house. And then we spent a lot of time, um, just being outdoors and fishing has been a big part of it. So we'll go to the beach and live up here in, in Petaluma, California and able to access the Sonoma County coast and catch crabs and fish and just really enjoy being out in the water. Yeah, I got a feeling your kids are going to be fishermen too. There's no no doubt yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> They've been exposed to more of that at their young age than most adults, which I think is is just fantastic showing them showing them that part that world. Well, let's let's jump right into it. Former United States Marine, uh you were a story in my book, but I want to go a little bit deeper into it. And and I thank you for being on the show. Uh, and I know you're one to talk about it, which yeah. I think is part of the therapy to be able to do that. But you were a you know young twenty one year old, uh, I, you know eighteen year old out of high school, and you decided to join the Marines. And what I find you know humorous and not so humorous is you know you joined the Marines because you were a musician, you wanted to be in the Marine Band. Then all of a sudden, nine eleven happened, and you switched right to the infantry. Go through that process with me when after nine eleven, of all of a sudden saying you know what I want to, I want to carry a rifle, not an instrument. It just, it was a call to serve and just a call to, to do everything I possibly could to serve the country. And I didn't know what the future held, but I didn't feel that I would be of greatest service to this country if I were playing music. And so it just kind of gnawed at me for a while. And it took a little while before I finally made that switch, but it was a, an act of actually listening to my heart 
and doing what I knew in my core to be the right path for me. Did you have peers with you that went down the same road that were, you know, in the Marines for one reason and all of a sudden joined that infantry? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there are, but I didn't know people among me that did. In fact, a lot of people in the band, I was at school, uh, the um, Armed Forces School of Music, and they tried to talk me out of it. They said, no, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> and But I was, I just had made up my mind it was the path I needed to take, and so I, I went full speed ahead. What did your family think about that? Oh, they were horrified. You know, first I told them, you know, I was joining the Marine Corps and they were expecting me to go to college in Germany and they were excited about that. But then when I didn't do that, you know, I just told them I joined the Marine Corps. They, you know, were horrified. And this is during peacetime. And then I told them that I was going to be in the infantry during a time of war. And I can only imagine the stress that I put on my parents and my grandparents uh, letting them know, yeah, I want to be as far in the front and expose the danger as possible. Well, we all make decisions in our lives that we believe is the best for us. Sometimes we make decisions that they aren't the best decisions for us. But <laughs> if you knew in your heart, did that have some kind of pull or tug on you where you've got your parents and your grandparents and your loved ones not wanting you to do it, but you knew it was the right path you wanted to take? Did that have a tough strain on you? Yeah, I had a really tough strain because there's people I care about. And, you know, as an 18 year old, it didn't enter my, my mind as much as it does now having my own children and understanding mm -hmm. what that fear is like. But I knew it was causing them distress. And so I had to weigh that against what I just felt was my path and what the steps I needed to take and the places I needed to be. And so ultimately, um, I just decided to trust that instinct to to go where I felt called. Isn't that amazing? The old adage comes back of parents saying, "Just wait till you have kids." You know? <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, I hear it loud and clear now. <laughs> yeah, you do, and you think about it loud and clear. I'll bet you do. Yes. Well, you went through your first tour of Iraq. You were you know, 18, 19 years old, 20, 20 years old. And and uh, then you came home and you went on a second tour. Was that was that by choice? It was not by choice. It was just my unit got slated to deploy again. And we were actually surprised because we assumed that the war would, would be winding down and we're wondering what we're doing being sent there. So we got sent to Iraq the second time and under the, the idea that we'd be just you know, talking with the public and, and the Iraqi people and, and basically guarding um, water pumps and roads and, and, you know, electrical stations while the country was rebuilt. And obviously it turned out to be far different than that. You know, the, the resistance in Iraq and the foreign fighters came in and, and really uh, this turned into a full scale combat deployment. So, Mike, you get over for your second tour of Iraq, you and your fellow Marines, and that must have been uh, eye-opening because it's not what you anticipated it was going to be like over there. And then in November of 2004, you're leading, you're actually leading infantry. You're, you're now a leader in the U.S. Marines, and you, you get involved with the Second Battle of Fallujah, which for everybody out there, if you don't realize what that battle was all about, it's a bloodiest battle the Marines had been in since Vietnam. And you lost many of your comrades in that. Uh, if you do it for us, if you go through uh, what you can of that battle, yeah. what, uh, what was happening, 
the recollection and thought of it now, and then we'll go mm -hmm. to the other side of uh, what happened because of it. Well, it started November 9th of 2004, and we got sent in with um, armored vehicles and to take a compound in the middle of the city, establish a foothold. And I was one of the first, if not the first person out of, out of my vehicle. And I took a step and a half and I tripped on something. It felt like a sack of potatoes fell on my face and it was, it was nice. So I couldn't tell. And then I, I looked closely at what I fell on and it was a dead body, you know, of an Iraqi insurgent. And so right out the gate, I'm faced with death and seeing that right there. And the battle was a, a big, a lot of parts blur together because there's so many different firefights that we fought through, you know, the entire city for the most part had been evacuated of civilians and there's still some civilians there, but most of the people there were trying to actively kill us and they did not want us there. And, you know, I, I remember one occasion, the first day there seeing, you know, these, uh, women and children, a group of about 10 people, kids and women walking in front of us and of my position. And I was telling them, Ta'al, come here. And, you know, we had a safe place for civilians, but lurking behind them were these men and they're using them as human shields. And so the law of uh, rules of engagement at the time were that enemy could not, or people could not use a white flag of surrender to maneuver around, but they had to come towards us. So it was well within my rights to open up and try to hit the, the enemy behind them. But I decided not to. And I was so angry that the, you know, these terrified women and kids were just being used as shields. And, you know, I don't know if it was the same people, but later that day, a sniper shot and killed one of my old lieutenants, um, through the side of his body armor, um, died there on the spot. And so what I learned off the bat from battle is that a lot of times there's not right and wrong decisions. It's, there's right and left decisions maybe, and you, you decide what's what you, what you can do in the moment and what we did after that was simply clearing houses and when i say clearing houses it's kicking open a door of a house that's from one to three to four stories tall and clearing that with anywhere from four to 12 people and urban combat is not very favorable to the offense it's more favorable to the defense so the people who are in the building waiting to shoot us as we enter so Every time we kicked down a door expecting to see somebody, it was a relief when we didn't, but we knew that at a certain point our, the luck would run out. And, and sure enough, we found ourselves, you know, facing people who were aimed in trying to kill us as we kicked open these doors, um, you know, to find them. And it basically came down to luck, fortune, um, and who had the quickest draw. And so that was my month. That was my month. And every day I would hear, well, not every day, let me back up quite often throughout this month, I would hear that another Marine had been killed and another Marine that I knew had been killed. And after a while, you know, I gave up on trying to come home, you know, for a while I was trying to avoid being shot and killed so I could come home to my family, to my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And 
a strange thing happened when I accepted my fate as I thought it was that I was to die in that city. It kind of took the pressure off of trying to survive. And what I could concentrate on now or then was to protect my men and to do the very best I possibly could as a Marine. And I, I had an experience getting trapped inside of a building, uh, searching for these these insurgents who had outflanked us and were about to ambush my platoon and a really life-changing experience. And the very last room in the house that we were going to clear, it was almost an afterthought. It was a small bathroom. And so it was, it was, oh yeah, go ahead to my point, man. Check that really quick before we go out the back door. And as he opened it up, you know, these, these two insurgents began firing on us and we were pinned against a wall uh, about three feet away from this door and just imagine a narrow hallway and behind that narrow hallway is stairs coming down and you know as as they're firing at us through this you know and we're firing back at them smoke fills this room that's already pretty dark i hear one of the guys behind me yell out and you know say you know that uh he's hit and he had gotten shot in his helmet and i figured he was dead and I could feel these bullets going in between me and my point man. And at that point, I just knew, or I really highly suspected that I was about to die. And a very strange thing happened is that there were no regrets other than the fact I'd never get to see my girlfriend ever again. And, but I was really proud of the guys I was fighting with. And so it was just this fierce loyalty to these men I was serving with and this brotherhood. And in that moment, a strange thing that I'll never forget happened and changed my life was that I could experience every single cell in my body. I could experience um, almost as if I could see outside of every part of my body. And time slowed down to where it felt like there was no time. And the best I can explain it is that my consciousness started expanding out and the separation between me and my men and the guys we're fighting against, even the building we're in and the city we're in, out and out and out into infinity. And you got to imagine as, as you know, a 21 year old who <laughs> didn't grow up with any kind of mind altering drugs, this is a very new experience to me. And what, what it just, everything was okay. It was this peaceful, serene moment that seemed to last forever. And all of a sudden I just got sucked back into my body and there I was shooting at someone who was trying to kill me. And I eventually survived and, and, and was able to win. I was able to take that person out. And it was, it was an interesting thing because I, I don't think anybody can prepare for moments like that or prepare for the intensity of those moments, but that wasn't a necessarily unique moment. That was one point in time in an entire month of this happening. And it was not long after that, that I learned that a lot of my friends were getting hurt and killed um, in a sister platoon in another company. And these are guys I knew, guys I like went to infantry school with, trained up with. And the worst part about that wasn't me getting shot at, it was that moment where I was sitting on the sideline, hearing the radio of, of my guys getting um, killed, wounded, hurt, and there was nothing I could do. 
feeling that helplessness was the worst part of it. And so I would, I would just waiting to go in to help. And a lot of times there was nothing I can do. You know, one of my friends, Gentian Marku, um, grew up in Albania, emigrated to the United States. He was shot and, and the explosives that he was carrying lit on fire and he, he burned to death. And my friend, uh, Dave Hawk, um, shot in the face while saving his entire squad from someone and shooting at him in, in the, the same house. And so all these, all these people, you know, heroically looking out for each other because it wasn't about politics and um, it's a cliche, but it wasn't. It was about being the very best Marines we could be and accomplishing our mission, doing what we were sent to do um, to root out an enemy in a city so the civilian population could live free without fear. And, you know, it took a toll on us and a, a toll that a lot of us are still um, dealing with today. Oh, Mike, just, just listening to that, I, I mean, it, it's very emotional. It's very tough. I, and, and what I keep thinking about is, my goodness, you were only 21 years old. Yeah. Most of us were in college drinking beer and not having a darn care in the world, you know, and, and you're making life-altering decisions and trying to save the ones, you know, you love around you. And, uh, and, and then you talk about being a survivor and, and hearing all your other comrades that you know and you trained with not making it through. Yeah. And at that point, you had no idea what survivor's guilt was all about. So take us to the road of you now are going to come home, but before that, you were uh, stationed at Abugar Prison, correct? Yes, uh, we're at Abu Ghraib Prison. And uh, I... They sent us there because, you know, we had done what we set out to do, but also because some of our units were considered combat ineffective. We had lost so many people. We ended up having 21 people in all and our unit killed. And what we did was just basically patrol the area, do security patrols. It was very, very easy compared to what we just come from so and it was hardly like ever a, getting shot at. A light duty thing to have you try. Was it was it the way of having you try to readjust and come back or how, what do you think? I think that they they had people to replace us in the in the city of Fallujah, and then they knew that we needed something a little bit easier to give us a break, and we were about to rotate back to the the states. And so I think um, it was a way of of kind of decelerating us from the deployment. Um, but I had a lot of time to think, and I had a lot of time to think about the guys I, I would never see again. And I, I remember thinking it's like a song I hear on the radio that just stops, you know, these lives cut short. And I was thinking about my good friend, Todd Godwin, another redheaded guy. We looked very similar and <laughs> we planned when we got back to introduce our girlfriends to each other and plan to just, we're just excited for, for getting back home and be able to, you know, relax a bit and not worry about people trying to kill us every day. So when he was, when he was taken from us and killed, uh, it, it just, I started thinking like, well, well, how did I survive when these guys didn't arguably better Marines than I, how is it possible that, you know, bullets hit them or, you know, explosions got them 
and I'm still here and I felt tremendously guilty. You know, like there's something I should have done. There's something I could have done. And I replay these scenarios in my mind over and over and over. And they all ended up in failure. And it was just this hell of never being able to bring these guys back. And I remember the memorial service that we had. I drove my friend Todd's parents around the base to the memorial service and spoke with them. And it, it would, took every ounce of bearing and tact that I had to not just break down crying right there. And I remember after the ceremony, just being unable to go up and face some of these parents that had lost children because there's nothing I could say. I just felt terrible. You know, I was there and their sons were gone. What could I possibly say to them? And so that, that began just my way of dealing with both the guilt and these intrusive thoughts playing over and over in my mind. The only thing that I knew how to do was get completely obliterated with alcohol and then later cannabis um, and some other, some other drugs because it was the only thing that would take that in, in intense anxiety and intense uh, sadness away for just brief moments. Well, plus, you know, you didn't want your life to go on, obviously. And, yeah. and uh, at, the, at the prison on that duty, tell us and walk us through that, if you would. I mean, yeah. you, you still wanted to come home and see Sarah. You still wanted to do the things in life that you always wanted to do. And just like you said, you just wanted to relax and not have somebody trying to kill you. But yet, it was so unbearable mm -hmm. for you. You, you. you wanted to take your life. I sat there in, you know, prison cell myself inside one of the guard shacks of the prison and, and just, I, I held my, I propped my M16 up and, and stuck it into my mouth and I sat there with it on fire on the selector switch on fire. Um, just waiting, just trying to get up the courage to take my own life. So I wouldn't be such a burden because I felt like such a failure that I let people down and that just the the hell that was playing out in my mind and the guilt that I felt it was just too much. And I sat like that for what felt like an hour, you know, and eventually, thankfully, I decided not to go through with it. But I was that close. My finger was on the trigger, just waiting, just waiting for the, that, that one little final burst of courage to do it. And thankfully, that didn't come. And I continued on. Um, but had that happened, I mean, now I realize how devastating that would be for everybody who knew me, but back then it was all I could do to just get out of my head and I, I couldn't do that. So those thoughts couldn't even enter. And then you come home and like you talk about, you know, being on drugs to make sure that that pain just goes away because you, that was like, you know, your self therapy for goodness sakes. But then all of a sudden, you know, people came into your life and and uh, Sarah gave you an ultimatum. She couldn't live like that with you being as yeah. reckless. And it's almost like you wanted your life to end in a natural way so people wouldn't be so sad, as sad about it as if you committed suicide. So what was that turning point? What do you think? I mean, there was probably a lot of turning points, but yeah. that brought you back and said, you know what? I got I to gotta figure this thing out and get some help. You know, I... I knew that I loved Sarah uh, when I dropped her off right before at the airport, right before I deployed, just because of the heartbreak I felt of being separated from her. 
and then I I knew that she was the one for me that I was completely in love with and but I also had this addiction and you know my love for alcohol and and drugs and what they could do for me you know was a very close second because it was the only kind of relief I got and so when she finally said look I can't go down this path with you anymore you have to choose I can't do this anymore it's either me or this drugs and alcohol and I, I hesitated for a second because I thought, well, wow. how, what will life be like? It, it will be just horrendous. You know, I, I know what it's like to feel these feelings. <laughs> I don't like it, but I knew that I loved her more than the fear of that. And so I decided to put the bottle down, put the pipe away, get rid of all that. And, and then, you know, there's tremendous void. Like I had all this time to think and feel and experience you know real emotions that i had put off for for years and they came crashing at me like a you know tsunami and thankfully i had the support of a therapist i had the support of people in the recovery community to walk me through that but that first year was was just rough and raw i'll i'll, I'll bet it was but you got through that first year and then all of a sudden you started realizing that when uh, you you balance out your life and you start working out a little bit, there's a transformation, isn't there? I mm -hmm. and, and I, I it was a healing that you didn't know that was out there. Take us through that process. All of a sudden, you you start running and doing some things, and you go I, the thoughts of of your past were going away, uh, not completely, but but you were yeah. handling them better. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something too, and this ties in what PTSD is like. It is your mind and your brain realizing that you are in a relatively safe spot. I was in a town called Walnut Creek, California, just as wonderful as it sounds and, and peaceful. And and that's my, my brain logically knew I was not in a war zone, but my body felt as if I was about to die. And so I had this conflicting information going back and forth and back and forth. And so it just didn't feel safe to even be in my own body. And so I was constantly afraid, constantly having panic attacks, you know, getting nervous sweats, you know, uh, walking down the stairs. Uh, and then just all of a sudden a wave of panic and fear would hit me and I, I would collapse. And it was confusing because I didn't even know what was going on. It was just horrible feelings. <laughs> and so... When I started running, I remember the specific corner I was on in this neighborhood where I lived. And I just realized that I feel pretty good right now. And I felt safe in my own body. And for someone carrying around trauma, it's absolutely priceless to be able to feel that safety in your own body. And so I said, there's something to this. This is a good feeling. It was a very familiar feeling of exercising my body, moving it, you know, pushing it just enough to where I felt that. And I continued on that, you know, with running, with swimming, uh, eventually got into some cycling and some CrossFit. And I said, there's something to this. I just don't know exactly where it's headed, but I really felt a connection with exercising. And you were still going through some pretty intensive therapy at that time, too. So the combination of that, you think that was uh, it's a powerful combination for people with PTSD, isn't it? It's a powerful combination. And the one thing that I was lacking, the one thing I still needed to find was a purpose. 
Uh-huh. Because in the Marine Corps, I had a purpose. You know, I was an infantry team leader and then an infantry squad leader. I knew my role when I walked around. I knew who was above me in rank, who was below me, who was my equal. And when they were wearing their dress or service uniform, I could see their ribbons and medals. And I could tell, you know, where they had been. Their resume was right there on their chest. And so I knew how I fit in, what exactly I was supposed to do. And then I get out. And I'm still trying to comprehend this crazy experience I had in urban combat. You know, surviving death multiple times, trying to make meaning of people who are dead, trying to make meaning of, of the act of killing. And I just didn't have a purpose yet. And so uh, fortunately, that came up not too long after. And, and what was that purpose? You know, it started on a vacation and I was on a vacation on the big island of Hawaii. <laughs> right there in Kona. And I'm noticing that there are a lot of people wearing spandex who are very lean, <laughs> running around with these big old goofy grins on their faces. And I and these bikes that look like spaceships. And I had no idea what the hell was going on. And I said, okay, I, I finally saw, you know, the the Iron Man village down in Kailua Kona and, and looked around and just saw this buzz of energy. And then I was like, I like this. This is attractive. This is something I want to see what these people are all about. And so I looked up on, on did a little research on my phone and, and looked at the distances of an Ironman triathlon. And, and at first I got um, afraid and then I got angry at these people. Like, why would you do this? This sounds horrendous. This is a horrendous thing. But at that point in my life, I had had these fears and I realized through some therapy and spiritual work that these type of fears, why would I be afraid of other people doing an Ironman triathlon, right? Mm-hmm. Unless it meant that it was something that I was supposed to do that I like in my heart, I, I wanted to seek out. I didn't know why at the time, but I did. And so I watched the race. I was just enamored with it, watching these athletes, you know, ride their bikes down the Queen K and just see like all the dedication to this this sport i was like i know this makes me feel good i wonder if it's possible i could do something like this and so not knowing why i signed up for a half iron man uh when i got back and throughout my training it took the first couple months of just like oh this feels pretty good but i don't know why i'm doing this but i trusted that i was supposed to do this there's just this feeling i had and I saw this video clip of a woman named Lisa Hallett who had lost her husband in Afghanistan and she started running to deal with her grief. And I said, I can relate to that. And I saw that she, she started wearing his name and created an organization called Wear Blue Run to Remember and which they would honor fallen service members. And, and then it just clicked. You know, I started crying. I felt this relief and along with this, this grief and sadness, but I was like, this is what I can do. This is how I can honor my fallen friends. I can wear their names. I can tell people about them. I can race in their honor. And so I immediately got a triathlon jersey with all 21 names. But then I decided to add eight more names. So 29 names in total of guys who had been killed since I'd been to Iraq, um, who either died of their wounds or died in a subsequent appointment. All these guys who fought with me though. So I had 29 names on my jersey. And all of a sudden I had that purpose. I, I knew what I was supposed to do. And then it just felt like I was unstoppable. You know, 
people talk about divine intervention and fate and and the higher power throwing stuff at us that we need and and you being on that big island at that certain time when I first heard the story I go that's it there's no argument against yeah. it someone put you there because you needed to be there uh, and then having that race jersey with all the names on it I just can't imagine you know the the heaviness of the burden that you had all those years because of those comrades that are now gone and you're feeling guilty like why the heck am I here and and they're gone but now that heaviness of you wearing the the race jersey with their names on it probably was it, it was it was lightweight and it but it it was curing wasn't it it just it had mm-hmm. i just envision you having those names on your shirt and i've seen it and you finishing with it uh, it, it has to be something that is just a revelation for you. Yeah. You know, it felt like these guys were carrying me along. Like I was running in formation with them. You know, I wasn't doing this alone. I was doing this with 29 other Marines, you know, so there were 30 of us there doing this race and well, I didn't feel so alone and I was able to grieve in a productive, healthy way. You know, sometimes a lot of times I'd be running and think of them and start crying but it was good. It was grief being released, not like held in in this macho way of like, I'm, I can't feel it. I can't feel right. it. You know, I needed to do that in combat. I couldn't break down and cry in combat. But, you know, coming back, you know, the, the every emotion that is there for us to feel, we need to feel it. And the more we put it off, the worse things get for us. And so I was finally able to permit myself to feel these feelings and in a productive way. It didn't involve crying into a cup of beer you know, or walking alone, you know, around my house at two in the morning. So I could, I could grieve in a healthy way. And I started realizing that other people who were unable to grieve started looking at what I was doing and said, Oh, maybe I can do something similar. Maybe it's okay to feel the sadness because what I realized, Mike, was that when we feel this intense sadness is because there's a base of love and we love people that we lost so much that the the absence from them creates this void and this sadness. But I knew that if I dove down underneath the numbness, underneath the anger, underneath the sadness, that I'd hit that almost like a wellspring of joy and, wow. and, and that love. And so if I just went down through it, I could feel that and I tapped into it, you know, racing and training. But PTSD is such a tough foe isn't it because yeah so many men and women not only military but police officers firefighters people in uh, the medical profession i mean people go through a lot of trauma and ptsd seems to be the thing like you know what you're not going to beat me i'm not going to let you get to those lower levels i'm going to keep you up here with me so the fight of of fighting against that is almost has to be as tough as any fight you ever had it is because you're fighting invisible forces and i know the i i know how to get cover and return fire and assault through an ambush i you know i've drilled this over and over and over and and, you know i've survived a few of them and so i know the rules of combat i know how to fight that way but fighting against you know memories and thoughts and feelings that just show up and that was totally new and so you're right it's it's tough as any battle right there because there's no clear way to to fight against it. And the more I fought against it, actually, the worse it got because I was resisting feeling those feelings. And so 
the act of surrendering to them, you know, a word that Marines are not familiar with, surrender. You know, I'd surrendered to feeling those feelings and just letting them pass through me. That turned out to be the answer, but it was so counterintuitive to all my military training that I took, yeah. you know, a spiritual and, and therapeutic approach to, to know how to handle those feelings. Hold on, everyone. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. As an endurance athlete, you're constantly pushing your body to new limits, searching for your personal best for the next finish line. If you're training for an endurance event, whether it's short distance or long distance, proper recovery is the key to you unlocking your potential. As the official topical pain relief partner for the Ironman US series, Activice's lineup of topical cooling gel, roll-on and spray features 8% menthol and eucalyptus oil to provide the instant icy relief you need to recover smarter and faster. The water-based non-sticky formula withstands sweat to keep up with the demands and exertion of race day. Don't let muscle pain or sprains hold you back from reaching your potential, from reaching your personal best. Shop the Activices lineup on Amazon today for the support you need to find your finish line. All right, Mike, now we're gonna, we're gonna jump forward. Mike Ergo is now running around with Lycra on, something you never yeah. thought you were gonna do in your entire <laughs> life. And right. then you get yourself signed up for the triathlon, you're swim, bike, and running, you're out there, and you wanna buy one of those, one of those bikes that look like a rocket ship. Take yeah. us through the, uh, the first triathlon you did, uh, and, and uh, what was that all about? Oh, the first one I did, well, we can talk about the first sprint I did was down in San Diego. Um, it was the UCSD, UC uh, San Diego puts on the Triton yeah. Man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I made all the rookie mistakes one can make. Um, and, I, and I, at that point, didn't have my jersey yet. So I was still fumbling through it. But maybe we fast forward to the first half Ironman I did. There you go. Yeah, the, um, the Ironman 70.3 Vine Man, which is, became Ironman 70.3 Santa Rosa. And I remember thinking, is it possible for me to go this distance? And then I had this other thought, well, I have 29 other people running this race with me. There's no way, possible way I can fail. And so that fear mixed with excitement, mixed with purpose, uh, I enjoyed the entire race. And it was great because I didn't have to worry about beating everybody, you know? Yeah. I wasn't in front of the pack, you know, but I could, I could, I could beat my own demons. I could face my own, my own fears and my own insecurities, you know, cause like, you know, there's plenty of time on the bike and plenty of time on the run to have all these thoughts come up and I could let them be because my energy could be, you know, pedaling. My energy could be running, hitting the pavement and I could let those thoughts pass through me. When you, when you finished that race, was there, uh, revelation may be too big of a word or too grandiose with something like that, but did all of a sudden you meet a new Mike Ergo? I totally met a new Mike Ergo finishing that race because I knew in, in that, that Iron Man motto of anything is possible really stuck out. And I was like, if I can do this, what else can I do? You know, if I don't have to cower from my fears and back down from them, and I can face them head on doing something that's completely foreign to me, you know, the swim, bike, run for 70.3 miles, 
what else can I do? And so then I came from a position of just complete strength and, and love rather than having to be, you know, controlled by fears. And so I, I was, you know, in a sense, reborn there. And you have talked about you're a family man. You've got two beautiful children. You've got lovely Sarah. And but there's some of your comrades that didn't get to meet their children. Walk me through when you carried that American flag across the finish line at Ironman Santa Rosa and who you gave it to and what it meant. The first time I carried a flag at an Ironman triathlon was Ironman Santa Rosa 2018. And I carried it in honor of a local soldier from Santa Rosa named Josh Kynock. And I connected with his Josh's mother and I tried to explain what I was doing. And I said, look, I realize that I, as a veteran, am really hurting um, and, and feeling a lot of grief. And I realized that many gold star families, which are families that have lost someone in service in the military, are really hurting and that we're separated, but that we both want to connect. And I said, what I would like to do is, is honor your son Josh at this race by carrying an American flag for the all 26.2 miles and telling people about him and then present that flag to you in, in the very best place in the world, which is the Ironman finish line. You know, that race day feeling. I mean, you've obviously been to so many of them. You know what it's like, that feeling that you see people conquer their fears and you see the, just the support of the crowd and, and you announcing them coming in, telling them they're an Ironman. And I wanted this, this family to have this experience and realize that their son wasn't forgotten. And so I carried that flag throughout the race, uh, throughout the run. And um, what happened was that I, although I started to grow tired, um, my mind was resolute and I was resolved to finishing that race because I had a, a very intense purpose was to get this flag to this family. And not just Josh's mother, but Josh's daughter was there. And I learned the story that he came home on leave during his deployment in Iraq to meet his brand new baby daughter and, you know, hold her. And then within a week, he had to go back. And very shortly after that, he was killed, you know, on October of 2005. And he never really got to meet her as she is now, you know, almost a full grown woman. And so to be able to carry that flag and hand it to his daughter and hand it to his mother, just felt like I had that purpose. I could, I could help people with healing. And that's become my life work is to help people with their own healing. I can't heal them, but I can, I can walk beside them, beside them and help them heal. To all the men and women out there suffering from PTSD, uh, I've heard you say structure and routine is something you've got to keep a part of your life. Obviously, that's how you were bred in the military, and, and it, that seems to be helping uh, now and every day. But there was a time after you did an Ironman, you kind of took some time off as athletes, you know, the rest and everything. Yeah. But those old feelings of apprehension and the feelings you didn't want to have come back started kind of filtering themselves into your mind again. Uh, and you had to go back to that structure and routine. Talk to us about that. Yeah, the having the 
post-race what now feeling yeah. was uh, s somewhat similar to being honorably discharged from the Marine Corps or coming back from war. Yeah. It's like I had planned my life up until that point, but not beyond. And so when I when I had just, you know, the, the freedom to not train because I didn't have a, an upcoming race, it was a little chaotic. And I started feeling the the depression coming back. I started feeling the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety coming back wow. because I wasn't moving my body to discharge this energy. And so I realized that it's not a one and done kind of thing for people like me with PTSD and carrying grief. It is just like brushing your teeth. It's something you got to do all the time, which is great because, you know, I am able to be around other positive people you know, swimming with them in the morning, I'm able to structure my life in a way that permits me to be uh, the best version of myself that I possibly can. You know, if I'm if I have a tough day at work, you know, I, I it's tempered out by the run and the the bike or the swim that I'm going to have or have already had. And so that structure and routine was so crucial because I think in in combat it's so chaotic that that's the reason that discipline has to be maintained in the military because anything from a haircut to the way you march is all instilling discipline because there's so many things in combat you can't control you want to control every other thing you know that's why we have all these gear inspections you know ad nauseum and so the structure helps to deal with the chaos that ensues in the mind and in the heart and so if i can set up the structure of training um, for an upcoming race then I have the stability to say, okay, this is pretty bad now, but I can make it to this next bike. I can make it to this next swim. And not every day is like that, but some days are worse than others. And some days I really need the training. I mean, I have yet to have an experience where I work out and say, man, that was a waste of time. You know, every single time I've worked out, it's been to my benefit. It usually is to everybody's benefit. Everybody else, yeah. I don't want to go out for that workout. Oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, they get done. They go, thank God. I was a mess before I went for the workout. Yeah. No matter, you know, things happen at work or at home or whatever. Mike, have you ever envisioned or gone through your mind of how you will approach the subject of what you went through with the PTSD with your children when they're of the age that you can mm -hmm. talk to them about it? You know, I've already started having that conversation, Mike. And because one day, a couple of years ago, my daughter came home from school and I said, we learned about veterans today, dad, are you a veteran? And I said, yes, I am. And then that led to another question. Well, what does that mean? What did you do? And I said, well, I was in the Marines and I showed him pictures of me wearing my uniform. And that led to more questions. Well, did you go to a war? And I said, yes, I did. And oh. You know, it's interesting trying to make this age appropriate because it's mm -hmm. it's it's more than most adults can handle to tell them about, you know, all I've seen and done. And so what I did was tell my son because his name is Liam Todd and this middle name Todd is after my best friend Todd Godwin, who was killed July 20th, 2004. Mm -hmm. And I told him that you're named after a very special man who helped make me stronger, make me more confident, was a very good friend and a good leader and a very brave person when things got really scary in a war. And he was able to learn about, oh, wow, I'm named after somebody. Wow. And 
he was able to learn about this other human being, Todd Godwin, that I that I had this very close bond with. And so to explain those things, I'm still working through it, but it's it's scary because um, in a in a couple of weeks ago, my you know son said, "Hey, Dad, when I grow up, he's four years old. When I grow up, I want to be in the Marine Corps." And I felt a mix of complete horror and you know some pride. So I don't know what to do with those feelings, but I, I allow them to be there. But what I'm really excited for is this summer in July, I'll be racing Ironman 70.3 Ohio, and I'll be carrying the flag with Todd Godwin's name on a streamer and presenting that fat flag to his family. And my family will be there to meet his family. And my son, both my kids, and will and Sarah will be able to learn more about you know this man who um, is a hero in my eyes, who mentored me and, and was just a, a Marine's Marine and a great friend, and be able to learn more about him and his life. It's it's almost like when we try to teach our kids the experiences we've had, we do it under the auspices of don't make that mistake that I did, you know, and yeah, yeah. don't, don't go down this road, go down this road. But I, I, you know, you probably never thought in a million years, the, the life you've had in the past uh, is something that's going to help your children more than you can imagine. Who would have ever thought something like that? Yeah. You know, they, they say, Mike, we always need to have hobbies. Well, your hobby of doing triathlon but your passion and hobby is fishing. You are an avid fisherman. <laughs> I had the opportunity yes. last year to go fishing with you and Eric Keith on Eric's boat. Uh, but I want you, to, you're a great storyteller. If I told yeah. the story, everybody would say, Riley, you're just giving us a bunch of BS, you know? But I had the biggest link cod on my line. You tell everybody oh, yeah. what happened, Mike Ergo. Yeah, I'll take it away. <laughs> we were on a boat off the Sonoma coast. And we were catching, you know, decent sized rockfish. And yeah. all of a sudden I look over Mike Riley's rod is bent over like it's about <laughs> to snap. And he thinks he's snagged. And I'm, you know, I'm telling you, Mike, just reel it up. I think you're onto a big fish. You know, these suckers are big. And he started reeling it up. You started reeling it up. And all of a sudden Eric just goes, whoa, that's Lingzilla. And we see this humongous <laughs> lingcod, you know, on the end of this line. And then we see in this lingcod's mouth is actually the fish that you hooked that this lingcod is hitchhiking on. And, you know, just about to slip on the deck, I grab the net and go over to get this thing. And now, now everybody, motion, I'm going to stop, Mike. I'm depending yeah. on a former United States Marine. <laughs> I need help. Okay. I need my back taken care of my six. And, and I knew he was coming around with this big net. And I'm thinking, I cannot wait to tell everybody and show everybody this fish. <laughs> but then the United States Marine, what happened? <laughs> the United States Marine failed. <laughs> the, the net was put out there. The fish started to swim away. I could and I watch as I completely whiffed strike three game <laughs> over going home. And I've replayed that in my mind so many times over this last year. I replayed it to where I jump in the water and I catch the fish and save the day. <laughs> but at the end of the at the end of the day, I realize I'm right back here and I've failed to catch, you know, your biggest fish right there and net it up so you could show people. <laughs> 
Well, Lingzilla is still in there, and I'm coming up, and we're going to get that SOB, aren't we? <laughs> unfinished business. Yes, Mike Raley, you have some unfinished business on the Sonoma Coast. Yeah, yeah, I do, Mike, and we'll, we'll get it together. So as you know, your uh, brothers and sisters out there that are going through tough times and suffering, and everybody went through a tough time through the pandemic, and there still are, what would Mike Ergo's advice be to those who are battling PTSD or survivor's guilt or having any type of angst of trying to keep everything in themselves? What, what can you tell them to help move them forward? I would say to anybody suffering, carrying trauma, carrying grief around, that in the military, we don't operate alone. We operate as a team, you know, as a platoon, a company, a squad. A battalion and to reach out for support isn't weakness to reach out for support is allowing other people to serve and continue to have your back so you can have their back later that's just how we operate and so there's nothing inconsistent with being a veteran and asking for support from your brothers and sisters and what i would say after that is that moving your body is so important one, you feel better. But when I feel depressed or I feel anxious, my mind is either time traveling to the past or what I think the future might be like. And I'm not in my body. I'm not in the present moment. And I'm, I'm just stuck, though. I'm stuck. And so when I move my body and in this present moment, I'm learning how to be here right now, right here. And to let these feelings travel through me while I do something productive. So not only does it feel good, is it benefiting me and physical health wise, but mentally it's teaching me that I am safe. I am here. I am okay. And it's retraining my body, you know, to be resilient and to learn that it's okay to be here. It's okay to be happy. It's okay to exist in this world. And so I'd say reach out for support and go move your body. And the gratification, Mike, you must feel when you know your story's alone even this podcast, whatever it may be, or helping others in a big way, that gratification has to also be part of your healing every day. It makes my heart swell, Mike, just yeah. to think that I've been contacted by a lot of veterans and saying how it affected them. And I, I feel both honor and humility, you know, knowing that I need to be consistent with my message, but honored that I could be of service to help other people in the same way that I wanted to help the Iraqi people when I deployed, and I truly did. And I know that I can serve my brothers and sisters in arms by showing them a road forward after you get out of the military or after you get back from deployment. And it's just, it feels so good. It, my, my heart's just bursting with uh, gratitude and hope and just seeing, you know, the possibility of people who are hopeless, you know, finding that hope. Where do you suggest uh, someone goes to who are suffering from PTSD? Give us some avenues they can go to. Do you have some? Yeah, I think the one of the best places people can go to is a VA vet center. And that's what I do during, my, during the week for my day job. I'm a readjustment counselor and a director at a VA vet center here in Sonoma County. But they're all over the country usually staffed by veterans who are willing to sit down and listen. A lot of them who have been there, seen it, and who want to hear your stories. And I would not have gone to one 
had I not had a fellow veteran, a Vietnam veteran, bring me into a vet center to talk to somebody and talk to a counselor. And thank God they did because I wouldn't have done it on my own because I just falsely believed that it was not for me, that I wasn't supposed to do that, that it was a sign of weakness, but it really was a sign of strength to be able to ask for the help I needed to be able to be a better husband, father, friend. Mike, how can people communicate with you? I know they're going to want to, and, and I know yeah. you have your own podcast. How, how do they get a hold of you? You know, you can find my, either my podcast transitions from more, and you can find me um, under that name on Instagram or on Facebook. Um, you can contact me through my email, uh, mike.ergo at gmail.com. And, you know, hopefully when I see people, when I see you at a race or I see you around, uh, I love saying hi to people. I love hearing about your story. I love hearing about what you're dealing with. And, and no matter what level of fitness you're at, and I'm speaking to all my veteran brothers and sisters, you are on your journey and you're exactly where you're supposed to be headed to exactly where you're supposed to be headed. So I love to be able to support you any way I can. Well, Mike Ergo, you're a hell of a man, hell of a person. Uh, it's, it's an honor to know you and to have brought you across finish lines. I can't wait to do it again and, and to call you a friend. So thank you very much for your time and, and your story and your sharing because sharing is sometimes very tough for people to do, but your sharing, I believe, is healing. So thank you very much for that. Oh, the honor and the pleasure is mine, Mike, and I'm, I'm honored to call you a friend as well. Okay, buddy. And we're going to get that big fish. If I have you yes, as are. a United States Marine, jump your butt into the water and go get it for me. <laughs> Roger that, sir. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for checking out the podcast and listening in. And thank you to Activize, the official topical pain relief partner of Iron Man. Uh, you can pick us up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can go to my website, MikeRiley.net, and see where you can subscribe to this. So I look forward to seeing you next time at an event. And remember, we've got great memories of our past, but sometimes our best memories are the ones that are in front of us. Take care of yourself, everybody. And as always, my warmest aloha.